give an earthquake its maximum effort. Starting with the story and screenplay written by George Fox and Mario Puzo, author of The Godfather, Universal has enriched this fascinating drama of interwoven lives with a superb cast. Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, George Kennedy, Lorne Green, Genevieve Bujold, Richard Roundtree, Marjo Gortner, Barry Sullivan, plus the city of Los Angeles and its millions of people living, loving, planning, fighting until nature's most violent of people forces them to battle and claw for life itself. and Russie bodies. Welcome back to yet another episode of All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast about the music of Ron and Russell Mail, a.k.a. Sparks. I am still your host, Christian Huey, patiently sheltered in place to record another podcast episode for you all. In this, our 12th episode, I'll be diving into the flip side of 1974's propaganda. But first... A sober acknowledgement of the state of the world we live in as I write this and how the COVID-19 pandemic has even affected the goings-on in Sparks World. First off, as of this recording, Ron and Russell both appear to be doing fine and well at home in Los Angeles. Ron even showed off his collection of hand sanitizer bottles recently from their Instagram feed. I certainly hope if you're listening to this, by the way, that you and your loved ones are similarly hanging in there. The bad news, uh, from the perspective of us Sparks fans, is that Little Beethoven Records has pushed back the physical release of the forthcoming album, A Steady Drip, 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 from May 15 to July 3. You'll be relieved to know, however, that the digital release of the album has not changed. May 15 is still the date to watch. The latest drip in the drip, drip, drip of new songs slated to appear on the new album is a track called One for the Ages. Released on March 27, 2020, One for the Ages is the first of Sparks' new songs to have an accompanying video. The video, animated completely by hand, was done by Estonian animator Chintis Lundgren and features a pair of cartoon cats with some very familiar features in an office setting. I'm not going to explain the entire video here, but it's a fantastic work, and it matches the surface-level banality of the narrator's life as Russell describes it, and it also has a kind of disturbing uh, Lynchian weirdness. On top of that, it's also just really damn cute. Uh, now, as for the song itself, it's lighter on the rock stylings of the last two releases that we got from Sparks in the last couple of months, and it's heavier on dark atmospherics, including a much larger role for Ron's synthesizers, which I always welcome. Have a listen to One for the Ages. As I slip and slide, banging against the Drifting back with 
hunkered there in your bunker or you're one of the intrepid folks whose work continues to put you face to face with the microscopic dangers we face in our postmodern but unfortunately actually really really real reality uh, i hope you're able to take a moment to appreciate the beautiful things in life the smell of fresh coffee wafting from a parisian cafe serving to go only or the smile of a dog who's completely oblivious to what's going on and immune to all this mess. And, of course, stop to appreciate the hours upon hours of music from Sparks, who's given us now 53 years of music to enjoy. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please check us out on Facebook or shoot me an email at podcastsparks at gmail.com. And now here's episode 12. In the United States, filmgoers were enthralled to the mega disaster movie. Mark Robson's Earthquake was released late in 1974 and eventually grossed $79.8 million in the U.S. box office. That's nearly $400 million in 2019 dollars, by the way. Earthquake, a depiction of Los Angeles after the potential big one, that seismic event anticipated by geologists for decades that could potentially destroy vast parts of the American West Coast, was one of a trio of movies released that year that addressed similar preoccupations among Americans. The other two major disaster films of 1974 were Airport 75 about a man-made disaster that involves a small plane colliding with a passenger jet, and The Towering Inferno, about a group of people trapped in a fire engulfing a fictional world's tallest building. Those films reflected an anxious new time in America, when death was expected to lurk behind every corner, and for many, that death came in the form of so-called acts of God. On paper, 
It was a time of peace, or at least it was transitioning to a time of peace following the announced drawdown of the war in Vietnam. Americans were turning their attention to faceless, non-human threats. This was not without cause. Scientists had begun to acknowledge that Earth's climate was undergoing some unforeseen and rather sudden shifts. Temperatures were rising by just a bit, but the trend was becoming clear, and this was happening across the globe. Yes, there were a few scientists predicting another ice age, but those hypotheses were short-lived. At the same time, the early 1970s saw some devastating weather events. An earthquake in Peru killed an estimated 50,000 people. A flood in Pakistan took another 55,000 lives. Droughts all across sub-Saharan Africa, a deadly typhoon in Australia, a hurricane that obliterated a corner of Honduras. In response to the catastrophic consequences of several force majeures on American soil, President Richard Nixon passed two disaster relief acts during his administration. The second one was enacted in February 1974, about four months before his resignation from office. And that brings us to Sparks in October of 1974. The first single off Sparks' propaganda album was the gauzy, elegaic, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth. It was a starkly different choice of a single than the lead single from their previous album. That song was This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us. This was not a rock anthem, and contrary to how many listeners interpreted the song at the time, it was not a hippie pian to nature. In fact, no less than Ray Davis of the Kinks. Yes, by the way, he does pronounce it Davis, not Davies, although oddly, apparently Dave Davies does pronounce the surname Davies. <clears throat> Ray Davis, uh, Ron and Russell's musical hero, he panned the song on BBC, missing the plot and dismissing it as a, quote, hippy-dippy earth child approach. It was a warning, not a lament, and certainly not a love song. It came camouflaged in soaring melodies from Russell, a gentle string quartet backing the band. So criticisms that Sparks had gone flower power had to be coming from folks who were absorbing the song on a superficial level and whom forgot to read the lyric sheet. And here go those lyrics. When she's on her best behavior, don't be tempted by her favors. Never turn your back on Mother Earth. Towns are hurled from A to B by hands that looked so smooth to me. Never turn your back on Mother Earth. Grasp at straws that don't want grasping. Gaze at clouds that come down crashing. Never turn your back on Mother Earth. Three days and two nights away from my friends. Amen to anything that brings a quick return to my friends. To my friends. Never turn your back on Mother Earth. I'll admit... I was unfaithful, but from now I'll be more faithful. Never turn your back on Mother Earth and repeat and repeat. It was a powerful sentiment from Ron Mayall, showing both a deep distrust, yet also an awe-filled reverence for Mother Nature and her chaotic hold over our future as inhabitants of this planet. In the song's lyrics, the narrator seems to have survived a natural disaster of some sort and has been separated from his loved ones. After issuing a warning to those who might learn from his mistake, he vows to, quote, be more faithful. It's not clear precisely what this phrase means, 
Ron could be adding a tale of marital infidelity to the mix, but more likely his character is admitting guilt for taking for granted the benevolent side of nature's disposition. He may be admonishing the listener to be a better steward of nature, lest lest one meet her wrath. Sparks would take a similar, although more thematically direct, approach to a song much later in their career. With the similar sounding but more urgent Please Don't Fuck Up My World, released almost exactly 45 years after Never Turn Your Back. Now, that latter song is one of the few Sparks numbers to venture into the world of global politics, although I'm sure that the Mail Brothers would argue that the question of whether our planet remains inhabitable should be far from the realm of quotidian politics. Never turn your back on Mother Earth. The song, as well as the single, as well as the second side of the album, begins with a simple Bach-like etude from Ron playing somber, arpeggiated chords in D major on a synthesized harpsichord. He plays four bars, drifting down to A with his bass hand playing piano on the second bar, then lilting back up to B minor for the next two bars. Ron's chords on the bass clef hit in steady quarter beats on those last two bars, which lead the song out of the intro and straight into the chorus. Ron's piano is accompanied by the debut of a string section, which bridges the intro with the next section with series of sweeping descending notes. And then the full band kicks in. In a slightly lower register than usual, Russell croons an F-sharp. When she's on her best behavior, don't be tempted by her favor. And then he leads directly into the song's refrain, which has one of the most immediate bracing melodic lines uh, I've ever heard in a spark song. Now, that melody, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, And that song became another origin point for aspiring musicians of the time, many of whom would go on to develop well-recognized careers in pop music over the next few decades. A lot of these musicians would return the favor with cover versions of their own. Depeche Mode's Martin Gore was a massive fan of Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, and he recorded a synth-goth version in the late 80s. Nicolas Circus of the French band Indochine recorded an interpretation around that time, and in the 2000s, versions of the song were released by Billy McKenzie of The Associates, uh, American alt-folk songwriter Nico Case, Welsh songstress and spouse of Sparks collaborator Tony Visconti, Mary Hopkins. The song certainly had legs. Now back to the song. After the ascending, then descending final lines of the chorus, the band raises the intensity and starts back up at F sharp. After Russell sings the chorus a second time, the band pauses for a moment, trembling before unleashing yet another level of intensity. And that's for the bridge verse that revisits the D-A-B minor progression of the intro. Russell hits his familiar falsetto here, and this is a perfect song to demonstrate just why he gets up to that register so often. And it's because Ron writes the chord progressions that way. Uh, Often there's simply nowhere else for Russell to go but up. 
After the bridge, Russell goes right back into the chorus, same key as before, and then the song hits its quieter uh, middle eight with Russell backed only by some alien-sounding notes on Ron's Mellotron. Then, when Russell lets the phrase, with my friends, really soar, the band snaps back to D, but then the song's real standout moment happens. A simple but striking guitar solo is conjured forth from Adrian Fisher, one of his relatively few times to really shine on the album. And those notes come out sounding like something akin to a musical triumph. Russell, Ron, and the rest of the band coast on the energy from that moment to ride out the song, which dies out like a storm, leaving only Ron's keyboard notes to repeat gently as the curtain drops. Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth came to Ron fully formed, or so he said. I never even had to go to the piano for that one. Through a combination of cautiously unsentimental lyrics and some truly powerful playing by the band, Sparks avoided recording a single that could have turned into a sub-Phil Spector treacle in other hands. Instead, they earned favorable comparisons to similar highly lauded mini-epics of the era, such as Bowie's Life on Mars. Well, at least those were author Dave Thompson's sentiments in his Sparks bio. That's high praise, indeed, from Thompson, but I kind of agree. Let's take a listen to Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth.
Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth was the first single from Propaganda that was given a wide release. Released a few weeks before its parent album in October 1974, it spent nine weeks on the UK charts and it reached number 13. While that wasn't as stellar as the previous single's performances, it was no big disappointment either. Before the year was out, Sparks promoted the song with another appearance on Top of the Pops, as well as on that show's Dutch counterpart, Top Pop. The song was re-recorded by Ron and Russell for their album Plagiarism in 1997 with fully symphonic instrumentation and an operatic choir. Now let's talk about the B-side for the single, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth. That song is called Alabama Right. Alabama Right did not make it onto the final album, but it's a f- definitely a fun track. It's a Scott Joplin-style piano-heavy ditty with a weightless bounce and some fairly obscure lyrics apparently about a grocery store owner who either is or is thinking he is raking in the cash. Um, Here are the lyrics for this odd little number. Squeeze in between the lines. Hustle, it's nearly five. Hustle, it's nearly five. They're coming with coupons. They're coming with kids. All hungry. Pretty soon, they'll need to be fed. And they'll Alabama right around the register. It sure looks good to me. Alabama milk and honey everywhere. They're scaling the mountains of frozen delights. There's been an avalanche on aisle number nine. And they'll Alabama right around the register. It sure looks good to me. No need to go miles to Hollywood or pretend that you're celestial. There's no waiting now on check stand number 18. Squeeze in between the lines. Hustle, it's nearly five. Hustle, it's nearly five. This place plays no favorites by day or by night. It will not be offended if you buy light. Just so you, Alabama, right around the register, it sure looks good to me. Now, I for one... Don't really know what Alabama right around the register means. My suspicion is that uh, Ron's referring to Alabama, state in the uh, United States, of course, with the cliched and sometimes misleading uh, reputation of being home to a bunch of overbreeding, undereducated white trailer dwellers. From the lyrics, one does get the impression of a, let's say, working class family Um, setting their dozens of hungry, grabby children loose in the discount market, all there to cheerfully fatten the wallet of our narrator, the shopkeeper. Even though lyrically the song gets a big why from me, it did remind me that Sparks' first ever regional hit came out of Montgomery, Alabama. Could this be a perverse love letter to that humble town? Maybe we'll never know. But it is a fun song, and here it comes. Alabama Right.
Okay, now back to the album, side two, track two. We have the second and final song on Propaganda that enjoyed a wide single release. For listeners champing at the bit for a sequel to This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us, something for the girl with everything, and see the in the title, it has a similar kind of rhythm, comes the closest. Although something for the girl lacks the, the raw power of this town, it keeps the musical and vocal acrobatics of that song, and it even kicks everything up a notch. The song is really a two-minute, 16-second musical roller coaster ride. Uh, there are the drum rolls at the beginning and throughout that seem to mimic the lurching sound of the cars being being steadily moved up the track to the ride's initiating incline. And then the inevitable plummet that gets your heart pounding and shoves your stomach into your chest cavity. Then after a couple of minutes of whooshing and swerving and holding on to the seat bar for dear life, slamming into the side of your car and clenching your eyes shut through a couple of loop-de-loops, Ron, Russell, and company pull the song back into the station, and the ride's over. And the ride's over. Feel free to purchase a photo of you making ridiculous faces. Something for the Girl with Everything is so acrobatic with its ups and downs, it could literally be musical accompaniment to a trapeze act. Close your eyes and think about that next time. Now, the sheet music that I purchased says the song is in the key of B-flat major and in a 4-4 beat. To be honest... Um, my ears aren't skilled enough to interpret the notes or the beats in that song into anything useful. Uh, I will say that Ron's right hand is doing some very dexterous work on the keyboard, and his left hand is very fond of the uh, machine gun-like attack of lots and lots of eighth notes. Dinky's frequent drum rolls keep the song tumbling forward, but he also keeps a steady beat to hold the song together structurally. As for Russell, well... I dare anyone to try to karaoke this monster. And the lyrics. Do you have time to listen to the lyrics? Well, they're here. Uh, they're fairly cryptic. And they go like this. Rapid fire throughout the song. Something for the girl with everything. See the writings on the wall. You bought the girl a wall, complete with matching ballpoint pen. You can breathe another day, secure knowing she won't break you, yet. Something for the girl with everything. Have another sweet, my dear. Don't try to talk, my dear. Your tiny little mouth is full. Here's a flavor you ain't tried. You shouldn't try to talk. Your mouth is full. Something for the girl with everything. Three wise men are here. Three wise men are here, bearing gifts to aim. Bearing gifts to aid amnesia. She knows everything. Yes, yes, everything. She knew way back when you weren't yourself. Something for the girl with everything. Here's a really pretty car. I hope it takes you far. I hope it takes you fast and far. Wow, the engine's really loud. Nobody's gonna hear a thing you say. Something for the girl with everything. Three wise men are here. Three wise men are here. Where should they leave these imported gimmicks? Leave them anywhere. And, and anywhere. Make sure that there's a clear path to the door. Something for the girl with everything. And that's repeated several times. Three wise men are here, repeated several times. Here's a partridge in a tree, a gardener for the tree, complete with ornithologist. Careful, careful with that crate. You wouldn't want to dent Sinatra. No, something for the girl who has got everything. Yes, yes, everything. Hey, come out and say hello before your friends all go. But say no more than just hello. Ah, the little girl is shy. You see, of late, she's been quite speechless, very speechless. She's got everything. Wow. I wasn't sure at first blush what to make of the lyrics other than a guy singing about his spoiled girlfriend, but I came across an interpretation that hypothesizes that the narrator may have come into his apparent mounds of cash through ill-gotten gains. 
And the girl in question may or may not be the narrator's girlfriend. But anyway, he seems desperately hell-bent on bribing her into keeping her mouth shut. See what you think. Here's something for the girl with everything. Something for the girl with everything. Something for the Girl with Everything was released in several different countries between December 1974 and January 1975 and reached 17 on the UK charts. Like Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, Sparks performed the song live uh, on several outlets, including on German and Dutch TV. The single's B-side was Marry Me, which I explored in episode 10. Now, later on, uh, the song Something for the Girl with Everything was a favorite of Faith No More's Mike Patton, and his band joined Ron and Russell on a re-recording for Sparks' 1997 album Plagiarism. Now, song three on side two of Propaganda is Achoo. Yes, as advertised, the song is about sneezing, I guess, and it's an example of the kind of song that diehard Sparks fans adore and the merely Sparks curious are often completely turned off by. Not only is Achoo probably <laughs> ostensibly about a sneeze, but it climaxes with dozens of layered audio clips of actual sneezing by the band members. What you hear throughout Achoo, especially at that love it or skip it ending, uh, 
wasn't what was originally recorded. Originally, Adrian Fisher's guitar was much more prominent in the song, and uh, and evidently his guitar solo, which was meant to play the song out, was completely scrubbed by Ron and Russell and replaced by a barrage of human sneezes. It's unclear whether this was done to spite Adrian, who would soon quit in frustration just after the album's recording, or if this was simply an aesthetic judgment call from the Mail Brothers. However one feels about all the sneezing, Achoo is an undeniably catchy tune. Eh? See what I did there? It starts off with a humble intro on Ron's electric piano, but transforms into a high-tempo, bouncy shuffle and a healthy dose of the same glam rock largesse that was there in spades on Kimono My House. And what of the lyrics? Uh, a cursory reading has our narrator lamenting the loss of his girlfriend to an older man who's a doctor. The achu could represent just one of many common maladies that this new, more distinguished man can cure. A darker interpretation could be that the achu represents the effortless, quick procedure of her desired abortion at the skilled hands of this mysterious doctor. Okay, I told you, that's a much darker interpretation. Uh, listen to the following and you can judge for yourself. Who knows what the wind's going to bring when the invalids sing? La-la's with a powerful sting that'll stop any opera or any bing. Sing, spread the news across the land. All winners will be also rans. Achoo, one size fits everyone. Achoo, one breath, the deed has been done. Gray hair and a dash and a flare give your doctor an air. I'm hurt, but the choice that you made is an obvious one for a girl who needs care. I do hope that he makes you well. Say, is there any cure for hell? Achoo, one size fits everyone. Achoo. One breath, the deed has been done. Sing, Ile de France, and everywhere, you can't ignore that sort of air. Achoo, one size fits everyone. Achoo, one breath, the deed has been done. So, open wide, open wide, and say, open wide, and say goodbye, you'll be okay. Achoo, he's going to whisk you away. Achoo, he's going to make you okay. Or, you know, who knows, maybe the song is... Just about sneezing. Anyway, here's Achu.
The next song, Who Don't Like Kids, is one of just a few examples where Adrian Fisher and Trevor White are both playing guitar on the same recording. White's guitar is strictly uh, there for rhythmic support for Fisher's lead, but the low-gloss, fuzzed-out chords of uh, White's strumming seem to presage the no-frills, guitar-heavy, proto-punk sound of Sparks' first LP back in the U.S., 1976's polarizing Big Beat. Ron's keyboards take a backseat here, and Russell avoids uh, his higher register altogether, again, presaging Big Beat. The song's title is repeated intermittently throughout the song, as the song's melodic parts seem to slide about like poorly tied down luggage on the top of a station wagon. Truthfully, Who Don't Like Kids never really finds its melodic footing, but it's an interesting musical harbinger of things to come, and that throng of actual children bellowing out the song's title near the end is admittedly adorable. Now, I'm not sure why Trevor's simplistic riff plays ping-pong with uh, Ron's short keyboard line for so long at the song's end, uh, but something about it makes me think of a child asking the exact same question over and over again, and that's usually why. The easiest interpretation of Ron's lyrics is a castigation on the part of the narrator of some people's reasons for reproducing. The narrator appears to be scoffing to his partner about people having kids just to live vicariously through them or even simply to um, ensure the passing on of one's genetic material. Um, Here are the lyrics. You got a cigar. Here's a couple more because the offspring are springing through swinging doors into a world of ain't he cute. He looks a lot like his father. And here comes another of that proof that I'm not just a vegetable. The little proof that I'm more than mineral. The little proof that I'm just like the next guy, whoever he may be. Who don't like kids? Who don't like kids? Crawl, walk, running around, living proof that I'm really sound. They'll ensure I'm always around. And your bit and my bit will do their dance to body rumblings and tumblings and rote romance. And all the while, I'm thinking, deeply thinking, hey, what's it going to be? Sod or celebrity, boy or girl? Oh, well. It's off to work. And so long, baby. Kiss him goodbye for me. Who don't like kids? Who don't like kids? Crawl, walk, running around, living proof that I'm really sound. They'll ensure I'm always around. There's more in the wings. Shall we bring them on or shall we just sit and talk till the early morning and recite sweet nothings, sweet, sweet nothings? And everybody's here. Who don't like kids? And it repeats. Here is that song. Who don't like kids?
So our journey ends, appropriately enough, with Bon Voyage. Bon Voyage is one of the more emotionally resonant of Ron's songs vis-a-vis the lyrics, uh, but the melancholy bent to the melody and Russell's wistful singing all work to the same affecting end. The song contains some of Ron's most successful high-concept lyrics and a truly inspired point of view. Simply put, Russell is singing from the vantage of all of those animals during the Great Flood who didn't make it onto Noah's Ark and are bidding adieu helplessly to all the lucky ones standing two by two to depart from the shore and to live for another day. All the unlucky creatures can do is to face their imminent demise with as much dignity as they can muster. Bon voyage, bon voyage, repeat several times. Clouds forming on the gospel sky. Trouble is about to brew on us. It didn't matter that we tried. They can only take a few from us. The fins and the paws and hooves and feet saunter up the gangway. The randomest sampling is complete. God, could there be some way that I could wear a hood? Or, by the way, I stood sneak aboard with you? Imitate, 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 imitate. They still know it's you. Bon voyage, bon voyage, bon voyage. Peace be with all of you. I wish that I, I wish that I were one of you. Tears falling on the sloping sand. They're about to leave and we will stay. All governed by the rules of chance. They're about to leave and we will stay. Goodbye to my lucky friends and foes. Glad that we could know you. Everyone sends their last hello. I wish that we could join you. Two of you. Two of them, two of those, two of them, safety for the few, two of you, two of them, two of those, two of them, they will start anew. Bon voyage, bon voyage, bon voyage, peace be with all of you. I wish that I, I wish that I, I wish that I, bon voyage. Now, musically, uh, we're back in the pre-rock seafaring thrust of Gilbert and Sullivan, 
Although uh, dedicated Sparks fans can also hear strong echoes of 1971's ballad Slow Boat. Kudos to Muff Winwood for some tastefully restrained arrangements on the track. It's easy to see how a song like Bon Voyage, it's easy to see how a song like Bon Voyage, a big musical moment to close things out with a bang, could have been overblown with gratuitous overdubs in post-production. But aside from Ron's inventive use of the Mellotron to synthesize the sound of an orchestra's string section, you don't really hear much that's unusual beyond the five musicians playing in service to the song. Bon Voyage, while not overstuffed, is, however, in no hurry to leave the stage, and it sticks around for nearly five minutes, by far the longest track on the album. And it's just long enough to make you realize that you're feeling a bit mournful about reaching the end of the album. Here is Bon Voyage. Oh, 
And that is side two of Propaganda. As I mentioned in the last couple of episodes, Propaganda was Adrian Fisher's final foray with Sparks. He didn't gel with Ron and Russell, either musically or personally. Adrian felt that the brothers were snooty, twerpy prats who didn't know how to loosen up. He probably had a point. Ron and Russell hated Adrian's tendency to lean into playing blues licks and uh, blues progressions, and they didn't care at all for his hard-drinking, hard-partying lifestyle. Uh, the police even had to get involved uh, one night in Paris. When Trevor White was brought on board to, quote, fill out the guitar parts for propaganda, Adrian no doubt sensed that White was the mechanism by which Adrian was to be pushed out of the band. Here's Adrian Fisher years later in his own words. I knew I wasn't going to be in the band for much longer, and it didn't really bother me. Ron and Russ wanted good little boys who would do what they're told, stand in their place, so they didn't get in the spotlight, even on TV. What's the point of being in a rock and roll band if you can't rock and roll? It was the other guys I felt sorry for, the ones who were still stuck in there. Seeing the writing on the wall, Adrian used his remaining few weeks to earn some laughs at the brothers' expense. One prank he pulled on Russell in the studio was to be his last. For one reason or another, Russell had stormed out of the recording studio and into an adjacent room that had no means to open from the inside if that door was locked. Now, uh, although he didn't inform the other band members where he was going, Adrian guessed correctly, and promptly locked Russell in the soundproof chamber. Came back, feigned ignorance about the singer's whereabouts, and no doubt was delighted when a visibly distraught and confused Russell showed up back in the studio an hour and a half later. As Ron and Russ had done with Martin Gordon's firing, they did not fire Adrian directly to his face. Instead, they again tapped manager John Hewlett to do the deed, who in turn passed the buck onto his assistant, Joseph Fleury. Fleury was not happy about the process. He told Hewlett at the time, You do it to me like that, I will kill one of them. Now, even with Adrian out of the picture, the band was still convinced they needed a second guitarist, particularly for live shows. Feeling like they had considerable leverage in recruiting whoever they wanted, for a time, Ron and Russell initially sought to lure Mick Ronson and Mott the Hoople's uh, Ariel Bender. Those two were completely unavailable, so Sparks turned their attention to their next choice, Queen's now legendary guitarist, Brian May. Sparks, as well as the British music press, were certain that Queen had peaked and were on a downslope, probably into oblivion. As it happened, many in the Sparks camp had little regard for Queen's music, but they did admire Brian's talents. Uh, obviously, Queen were headed anywhere but down, and in fact would spend the rest of that decade and all throughout the next one as arena-filling megastars. For his part, uh, May later admitted that the jump to Sparks was a tempting offer. I did like the band, said Brian May. I loved this town ain't big enough for both of us. Anyway, they came round, the two brothers, and said, Look, it's pretty obvious that Queen are washed up. We'd like to offer you a position in our band if you want. I said, Well, I don't think we're quite dead yet. He was prescient. 
Now, after some soul-searching, Ron, Russell, and the rest of the band felt they, after all, didn't need a replacement for Adrian, and they simply pressed on as a five-piece. Now, that decision to remain a five-piece with just one guitarist uh, smoothed out some of the logistics of touring, um, and it saved Island Records uh, some money. Unfortunately, though, several live recordings from that era do indicate that certain Sparks songs ended up sounding attenuated and strained with just that single guitar part. After the October 1974 release of the single for Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth, Sparks started making the rounds on European television and took a sharp, short detour across the pond to North America to do three television spots over there. It was a very limited engagement, their promotional mini-tour of the U.S., but they were able to capture the eyeballs of television viewers that weren't available to them before, and they managed to capture the attention of an American music press that was really starting to catch on to glam rock. Furthermore, the kinds of music fans that Sparks appealed to in the States were light years away from the teen idol-worshipping, screaming teenage girls that greeted them back in the U.K., American listeners, at least the ones that noticed them, seemed more likely to sense a conceptual and intellectual heft in what Sparks were all about. Ron and Russell found it relatively easy to stroll through public spaces in the U.S. unmolested, whereas um, they had gotten somewhat accustomed to being mobbed by eager fans in England. In an unexpected turn of irony, it wasn't the male brothers, but the other three British band members who were more often recognized on the streets of New York City and L.A. It turned out that their previous band, Juke, was better known stateside than Sparks. Across about a week in October, Sparks did a six-song set on Don Kirshner's rock concert, four songs on Midnight Special, and four songs on ABC's Wide World in Concert. For the ABC performance, Sparks were introduced by two of their heroes, Keith Moon and Ringo Starr. Reportedly, either Ringo or Moon, or both, unceremoniously scissored off uh, Ron and Russell's neckties on stage and a playful gesture of subversion. Uh, after the show, Moon invited the band to his dressing room for a, quote, little drink, which in Keith Moon speak probably meant an aquarium of Jack Daniels. While in their hometown of Los Angeles, Ron gave a brief interview to writer Harvey Kubernick at the Continental Hyatt House. Ron reiterated his M.O. as songwriter for the consumption of an American music-listening public that seemed to have already forgotten about him and his band twice just in the last five years. Here's what he said. Rock is always bravado. I like using the little guy approach. I like to go at it in a half-serious way to bring out the point sometimes. I don't write funny songs. I like things where it's really blurred and you can't tell if it's funny or not funny. I think mystery is a good thing. Even though glam rock was a cultural blip on the radar in the States compared to its domination in the UK and Europe, acts like David Bowie and T-Rex were already massively popular stateside. Meanwhile, bands like Slade, Mott the Hoople were beginning to catch on, thanks in part to TV appearances much like Sparks's and to favorable coverage in music magazines like Cream and Circus. There was, finally, a market for Sparks in the U.S., really for the first time, and following an actual tour of their home country in 1975, Ron and Russell would decide once again to repatriate to America, 
Uh, of course, they wound up finishing out 1974 with a whopping 24-night blitz through the UK and recording one last album in the UK in 1975. What may have sealed the deal in terms of convincing the Mail Brothers to leave the UK behind? Homesickness, I'm sure, was part of it. Although even Kimono My House came and went from the American record stores just a few months earlier with little fanfare surrounding it, this record, Propaganda, thanks in part to aggressive promotion from Island Records, would actually crack the U.S. charts. During Sparks' 1975 tour of the U.S., Propaganda peaked at number 63 in the Billboard Top 100. They were finally getting somewhere. Soon, they would be ready to return to replant roots in the U.S. Local boys made good. The return of the Prodigal Brothers, say what you will. Next episode, uh, I'll get into Sparks' 1975 multinational tour and the making of their next album, Indiscreet, which was produced by the legendary Tony Visconti. I want to thank all you guys for listening to my podcast. Remember to like us on Facebook. And as always, feel free to drop me a line at podcastsparks at gmail.com. Stay well, everyone. Wash your hands and everything else. When she's on her best Behavior, don't be tempted by her favors now.